you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus, you would say that you're a Christian, I suspect there have been times in your life when you've doubted your salvation. Periods of discouragement, doubt, times of failure and sinfulness. Periods in your life where hope seems to evade you. During these seasons of life, we're often less left with the question, how do I know that I know Jesus? How do I know that I'm saved by him, that I belong to him? How do I know that my salvation is authentic? This is a critical question. The assurance of our salvation is a precious gift to us that will sustain us during the dark days of the Christian faith. The assurance of our salvation, knowing that we know Jesus, believing in our belonging to him. How do we arrive at a right assurance of our salvation? That is the question that our sermon passage answers this morning. The Apostle Paul, the ever skillful shepherd, reassures shaken Christians of the authenticity of their salvation. Paul reassures shaken Christians of the authenticity of their salvation. Let's turn together to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Bibles we've provided on your chairs, you can find that on page 986. Page 986. This morning we continue our summer sermon series in the letter of 1 Thessalonians, uh, a sermon series we've entitled Power for Life, Hope in Death. Power for Life, Hope in Death. The gospel of Jesus Christ provides us power to live the Christian life well, and it provides us hope in the face of death that is staring each one of us down. Power in life, hope in death. If you're here today and you need a copy of the Bible, we would love to give you one. Uh, in our lobby, there are bookshelves there. Feel free to grab one of the black hardback Bibles. Those are a gift to you. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, I'm going to read just a short passage here. Verses 13 through 16. Verses 13 through 16. Paul writes, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and displeased God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last." What we find here in this short passage is a second thanksgiving that Paul issues to the church in Thessalonica. And this is unusual because typically in his first century letters, there's one thanksgiving. And changes in the pattern and the frequency of thanksgivings in the letter clues you in on issues in the church that Paul writes to. 
So for example, there's one church that gets no thanksgiving in the New Testament. Galatians. Paul is worried sick over the spiritual state of the Galatians. He can't even thank God, thank them for what's going on in their midst because they're about to forfeit their identity as a gospel church because they've adopted a false gospel, a gospel of works. So there's no thanksgiving in the letter. Here in 1 Thessalonians, there's two of them. There's one that begins in chapter 1, verses 2 and following. We give thanks to God always for you all. He's overflowing with thankfulness. And then in chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, he reinforces a statement of thanksgiving. Why? What do we need to be clued in here? Friends, this is a church that is discouraged, that is in need of words of blessing and thanksgiving and reassurance over them. These are Christians in need of encouragement. They're a discouraged people. They are a shaken people, and so they need uplifting. And so that's why Paul doubles back on their thanksgiving. They're shaken, shaken by suffering, the heavy persecution that has marked this church since its birth. You can read about it in Acts chapter 17 when the church came to being. It was birthed in affliction, and it continues on even after Paul and company were chased out. They knew suffering, persecution for the name of Christ. So they're shaken by suffering. They're also shaken by sudden deaths in their church. Brothers and sisters, death in local churches has a way of bringing sobriety to Christians in the church. And this church had a series of sudden deaths, and it's shaken the church, and they have begun to believe that those who've died in Christ are somehow going to miss out on the return of Christ and his restoration, the new heavens and the new earth. They've, they've adopted this false line of thinking that somehow Christians who have died have missed out on the return of Christ and the reward that awaits them. And they're now doubting their own salvation. They're shaken. Paul's going to address this heavily in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 13 through 18. He's the ever-skillful shepherd who speaks to, seeks to bring encouragement in the place where there's deep discouragement. So the source of their encouragement will be a reminder that they are truly saved, a reminder of the authenticity of their salvation. That is what Paul is doing here. He's going to point to a few marks of their salvation, a few marks of authentic Christian faith that they have in their lives, that he can identify in their lives. So here's the theme of this sermon. Authentic Christian faith is marked by a reception of God's word, by a willingness to suffer for Christ's sake, and by a trust in God's justice. Authentic Christian faith is marked by a reception of God's word, by a willingness to suffer for his sake, and a trust in God's justice. And that's our framework, our outline for this morning. So first, authentic Christian faith is marked by a reception of God's word. We see this in verse 13. Let's look at verse 13 together. Paul says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as 
the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Paul's point is this. The Thessalonians have rightly received God's word for what it truly is. It is no ordinary book crafted by the minds of men. It is a divine book with divine power. The insights, the will, the mercy, the justice of God communicated to us through human pen and personality, yes. 66 books, a diversity of authors, genres, but it's God's mind, God's will, God's power throughout as we read it, as we hear it, as we study it. It is no ordinary book. It is living and active. And they've received it as such. Paul can see the genuineness with which they've received it because the power has poured out into their lives. What did Paul say in chapter 1, verse 9? I hear reported how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. God's word is at work in their lives, and the way that he sees it is that they've turned from their idols to worship the living and true God. God's book is no ordinary book. It is a divine book with divine power that changes us from one degree of glory to another. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, piercing the areas that are intricately, intimately tied together. The word has power to get in there and tease it out. No creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God's word is powerful. It is piercing. It exposes us in our sin and in our need and points us to the way to our Savior, Jesus. There's no book like it. Pastor C.J. Mahaney uses the illustration of muscle cars. I'm going to see a lot of those around here. Where I grew up, there were car cruises, muscle cars on a Saturday in June. People would come and kind of parade their cars around, and they would lift the hood up so that you could see the muscle of the engine underneath the hood. C.J. Mahaney basically says, look, there's power under the hood. You lift that hood up, the power is in the engine. And so it is with God's word. There's power under the cover of the book. Open up the cover and experience the power. There's no book like it. There's power under the cover of God's word. Open it, see it, experience it. There's power under the hood. There's power under the cover. I heard a testimony this week of a man in the midst of drunken hopelessness, loading bullets into the barrel of a gun, ready to take himself out, looks at his nightstand, sees a Bible, opens it, reads it, and is converted. There's power under the cover of God's word. Testimonies of people given over to marijuana addiction. In fact, rolling joints with the pages of the Bible, which is ever popular, look it up online. The thin pages of the Bible, perfect for rolling joints. And one day someone reads 
in the paper, about to roll that marijuana joint, for it is by grace you are saved through faith, converted. There's power in the book as we open it, as we read it. My friend Chris Slack, who used to be a member of this church, shared his testimony with me. He simply began to read the Bible as a teenager. He just opened the book, and it began to change him. There's power in the book. Testimony of St. Augustine, the third and fourth centuries. Here's a voice, take and read, take and read, turns to the book of Romans. It's converted by the grace of God. The Bible is no ordinary book. There's power under the cover. Open and read. Take it in. The preaching moment on Sunday is of utmost importance because God works through this flawed preacher and others like me just faithfully opening God's word and heralding it to you. There's power in the book. There's power in the preached word. In small groups with your friends, inviting people to read God's word with you is powerful. God brings people into his kingdom through the agency of his word. A quiet time with yourself with a cup of coffee on a Tuesday morning, there's power under the cover. Open it when you don't feel like it. It's a spiritual discipline, just like exercising is a discipline. It's hard to do. More often than not, open God's word. Read it. There's power in it. It is no ordinary book. In the book, in the Bible, we behold the beauty of Jesus. It reveals Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. We all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. That's the process of maturity in Christ. And as we open God's word, behold the beauty of Jesus, our lives are changed incrementally. Don't be discouraged if your life is not moving at speed of light trajectory. It's one degree of glory to another. It's incremental more often than not. God can do big changes fast. He, he can. But more often than not, we are transformed as we behold the beauty of Jesus in his book, from one degree of glory to another. Take it in, read it, make it your practice, your discipline. Authentic Christian faith is marked by a reception of God's word. Secondly, authentic Christian faith is marked by a willingness to suffer for Christ's sake. Authentic Christian faith is marked by a willingness to suffer for Christ's sake. Let's look together at verses 14 through 16. Paul writes, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. The Thessalonian church was birthed out of suffering birthed out of affliction. You see this. You can review this in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Paul goes there, and on three successive Sabbath days, he goes and he preaches the word of God to a collection of both Jews and Gentiles, and miraculously, many of them are converted. But after a while, the hostile, jealous Jews in Thessalonica stir up the rabble that is a mob of rioters, and they chase Paul out they imprison Jason, the host of the, the, the house church. He has to pay a fine, and their affliction continues even months after Paul leaves. It's a church marked by affliction, by opposition. 
by persecution. They were a battered group of believers. And what Paul is saying here is, hey, true Christians will look like Christ. And true Christians will look like their parent churches. He's saying there is a church in Judea, the mother church, birthed in Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, that knew suffering just like you know suffering, like mom and dad, like son and daughter. You're going to bear the resemblance and the experience of your parents. They bear the resemblance of the church in Judea because they are suffering likewise. And Paul's saying you ought not to think it strange when suffering comes upon you because it happened to your forefathers. It happened to your Savior Jesus himself. It happened to me. It happens to the church in Judea. Persecution, friends, is normal for the Christian life. Don't let anybody tell you different. Affliction for your faith is normative for the Christian life. That's what Paul is seeking. You stand in line of a legacy of sufferers for the gospel. Be proud. Don't be foolish. Don't suffer for unrighteousness' sake. Don't go out sadistically looking for it by your foolishness. No. But when it comes upon you, know that you are standing faithfully in a line, a legacy of sufferers for righteousness' sake. The OT prophets suffered. Jesus suffered. Paul suffered. And now they suffer for righteousness' sake. You're in good company, Paul is saying. He's encouraging them. He's reassuring them. Persecution is normal for the Christian life. Don't let it unsettle you. Don't let it unsettle you. Just a sampling of persecution passages. Just jot, jot these down and read them this week. John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 12, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, in no uncertain terms, says what is to happen. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus does the same thing that Paul does. You're in a lineage, a, a legacy of sufferers. So they persecuted the prophets that were before you. They're going to persecute me. They persecute Paul. They're going to persecute you, Thessalonians. And guess what, friends? Today, we will experience opposition for our faith in Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 3, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will face persecution. One more, and I'm done. 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 and 13, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in the sufferings of Christ. From Jesus to Paul to Peter, it's all throughout the word. Suffering is normative for the Christian life. We stand in line of a legacy. We are in good company. Stand firm. Stand firm. Don't cave. Stand firm. How do we see it in our world and in our lives? This week I had an opportunity to watch 79 people be commissioned to go and serve cross-culturally among the nations. 79 people giving of their lives to make the gospel known in unreached places. The majority of those people stood behind a curtain so that you could not see their face because they were going to sensitive areas of the country. 
79 people saying, here I am, Lord, send me. And they go. They're prayed for, risking life and limb for the sake of the gospel. Some are called to go in that application. Not all. All of us are called to pray. All of us are called to give. Some are called to grow cross-culturally. All of us are called to go locally. Risking relational discomfort for the sake of somebody hearing the gospel in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood. I get it. There's relational risk when we seek to share the gospel with people who need Christ all around us. There's discomfort. There are feelings of fear and awkwardness. And it can come with a measure of opposition. We have known in this country and in this season uh, a time of great opportunity. We can worship here on a Sunday morning, gather around God's word, invite our loved ones, invite neighbors and non-Christians here, and don't have to worry about someone barging through the door, some government authority hauling us. We've known a freedom. But there are measures of opposition that we can face in the workplace, in our neighborhoods, as we seek to share the gospel. Opposition is normative in the Christian life. Let me speak to a sensitive area and a tide of opposition that is coming towards Christians and the church, in fact, that has already come. I say this with love in my heart. If you seek to be a Christian in this society and hold to a biblical worldview of sexuality and gender, you are going to face heat for that. We, we, we see it all around us. This month that we're living in, we are called to operate with the utmost compassion, but also with conviction, to speak truth in love. And friends, when you hold to a biblical conviction about sexuality, that God creates marriage for one man and one woman to enjoy that gift, if you hold to that, no matter how lovingly you communicate that, you are going to face heat for that. If you hold to a biblical understanding of gender, that God creates men and women, male and female, he made them. We looked at this in our series in Genesis. If you hold to that conviction, I understand we live in a broken world. We live in a broken world where people's desires and attractions are distorted. I understand that. We need to operate with the utmost conviction and compassion, just pointing people to Jesus, pointing people to Jesus. But as you do that, you are going to face opposition. You're going to be called hateful, bigoted, and on the wrong side of history. You will. Think it not strange when you face that, but rejoice insofar as you're experiencing the sufferings of Christ. You're sharing in his sufferings. Oh, friends, be strong. Walk with Jesus. Be loving to your neighbors. It is a terrible witness to be mean-spirited and hateful. Don't do that. For God's sake, don't do that. Compassion and conviction, truth and love, hold to it. Hold to it. There's a tide of opposition coming. Stand firm. Stand firm. 
Authentic Christian faith is marked by a reception of God's word, a willingness to suffer for Christ's sake, and thirdly and finally, by a trust in God's justice. A trust in God's justice. Paul invites his suffering friends to trust in the justice of God in the latter half of verse 16. He speaks of these hostile Jews who, verse 15, killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They displease God. They oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. These Jews hinder us from speaking to the Gentiles so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. These are heavy words. There's a serious offense in here. What is it? These hostile Jews who've persecuted Paul and his ministry team, who've cast them out, who've killed the Lord Jesus, who've opposed the prophets, they're hindering people from hearing the gospel. That's the serious offense. It is in humanity's interest to hear the gospel because it offers salvation, the only way to be saved. And to stand in opposition of that proclamation of the gospel is to oppose mankind and ultimately oppose God. And Paul is inviting his friends to entrust their persecutors to the Lord, not to take matters into their own hands. It never works. When you take matters into your own hands, it never works. Paul talks about this in his letter to the Romans. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, proud, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to what you do, to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, insofar as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Paul's saying, don't take matters in your own hands when you're oppressed, when you're afflicted, when you're persecuted. Trust in the Lord's economy of justice. It's going to work out. He will right all wrongs. He will hold all people accountable. Trust in him. Don't take matters into your own hands. In the heat of persecution, do not return evil for evil. It's just going to compound the mess. But give grace and mercy Entrust your persecutors into the hands of the Lord as our faithful Savior did himself. 1 Peter chapter 2. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What did Jesus do when he hung on the cross and the passerbys mocked him and spat upon him? He entrusted those people to the hands of his father and in fact gave blessing and mercy. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When you tried to carry out justice in your own hands, you were going to do it in a flawed way. Friends, let God take care of that. Justice is his. His wrath will be meted out one day. He will hold all people accountable. Entrust yourself to him.
trust in him. Authentic Christian faith is marked by a reception of God's word, a willingness to suffer for Christ's sake, and a trust in God's justice. Our greatest hope, our greatest source of encouragement and reassurance in this life, no matter how dark the days get, is that there is one who absorbed the wrath that we all deserve. In this passage, we see enemies of God who are hostile to God and to his people. And there's the warning of God's wrath that is coming. But the reality is, friends, all of us, all of us at one time were enemies of God, rightly deserving of his wrath. But God, in his mercy, sent his son as a cosmic sponge to absorb every ounce of his wrath against you and against me. That is the good news of the gospel. You deserve the outpouring of God's wrath. I did too. But God sent his son to stand in our place to bear the full outpouring of his wrath. Soak it up like a giant sponge. There's none left over for you if you believe in Christ. That is our ultimate source of hope and reassurance and encouragement no matter how dark our days get. Cling to Christ in the dark valley, whatever that looks like for you. Are you walking through a dark valley? Cling to Christ. Let him be your source of hope and endurance and peace. Facing opposition, facing physical pain, joblessness, financial difficulty, cling to Christ. He is with you in the valley. Rejoice in your salvation. He's borne the wrath you deserved. And if you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here. Let me just encourage you to, to turn your eyes to Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Look to Jesus. He is the answer for your life, for your needs, for your brokenness, for your sin. Look to Christ. He's our only hope in life and death. He is the assurance of our salvation. Not our hold of him, but his hold of us ultimately. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said this, it is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from ourselves wholly unto Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this, for he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ, to look at our own selves, our own strength, our own circumstances. The Holy Spirit's work is opposite. Lift your eyes to Christ. Satan insinuates your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You don't repent enough. You will never be able to continue to the end. You have not the joy of his children. You have such a weak hold of Jesus. All these are thoughts about self, and we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is everything. Christ is all and in all. Remember, therefore, it is not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that is the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to your hand with which you are grasping Christ as much as to Christ himself. Don't look at yourself. Don't be impressed with yourself, your grip. Look to Christ who has a grip on you. 
Look not to your hope, but to Jesus, the source of your hope. Look not to your faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. We will never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. Let his death, his sufferings, his merits, his glories, his intercession be fresh upon your mind. When you wake in the morning, look to Jesus. When you lie down at night, look to Jesus. Friends, look to Jesus. He's the source of our hope in life and death. He's the reassurance that we all need on the dark days when we're wondering, where do we stand? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the power of your word. We're desperate for it. We're desperate for it. All of us, Lord, have sin and brokenness, failures, heartaches. And Lord, if we're honest, we're tempted to look and get fixed on those things, and we fail to see your power. We fail to lift our eyes to your strength. Help us look to you trust in the power of your word to endure suffering and affliction for our faith and to trust that vengeance is yours you will have your day of justice we need not take matters in our own hands oh god we desire to walk with you help us to do that this week as we witness in this culture desperately a culture desperately in need of jesus it's in his name we pray amen